This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics, and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. The King of Kowloon, My Search for the Cult Graffiti Prophet of Hong Kong, written and read by Louisa Lim. The secret message only appeared when the wall was drenched with rain. For weeks I'd been scouring Hong Kong for these misshapen Chinese characters but the way they materialised out of nowhere was a shock. It was an unremarkable yellow-grey stone wall in the middle of central, Hong Kong's political and economic heart. The words were only revealed when the wall had been soaked. In this case, after a downpour in July 2015, which left the wall darkened and damp. Suddenly, it was possible to see spots where the dove-grey paint had flaked off, revealing traces of Chinese calligraphy. The writing, in clumsy, off-balance characters about 20 centimetres high, was instantly recognisable for its lack of grace, elegance or learning. I can't remember the first time I saw characters like these. They were everywhere when I was growing up in Hong Kong in the 1970s and 80s, a feature of our city just as much as the bottle green snub-nosed star ferry and the noisy trams. Their author was a fixture of the landscape as well, a filthy, toothless, often shirtless rubbish collector with mental health issues. He called himself the King of Kowloon. Hopping on his crutches with plastic bags swinging from the handles, his crab-like bow-legged silhouette was so distinctive that if people saw him in the distance, they would cross the road to avoid him. As he passed, parents would shield their kids' eyes from him and mutter, cheesing, ah, crazy. He even became a playground taunt. You're the king of Kowloon levelled at the slow kids, the weird ones, the poor ones, the outcasts. His given name was Zhang Choi, and he had crossed the border to Hong Kong from mainland China at the age of 16. Zhang had since become convinced that Kowloon Peninsula, the southernmost point of what is now mainland China, 
had belonged to his family and had been stolen from them by the British in the 19th century. He later extended his claims to the whole of Hong Kong. It was in the 1950s that he started his graffiti protest against the loss of his land to the British. His denunciations took the form of tottering towers of crooked Chinese calligraphy, in which he painstakingly wrote out his entire lineage, all 21 generations of it, pairing names with the places they'd lost, and occasionally topping it all off with expletives like fuck the queen. He was careful in his choice of canvas, only writing on government property. Walls, flyovers, electricity boxes, post boxes. His messages were almost always immediately washed away or painted over by an army of government cleaners with thin hand towels hanging from the backs of their hats for makeshift sunscreens. But overnight, his words would be back again. After Hong Kong was returned to Chinese rule in 1997, Zhang's messaging continued. But that was the year the king's elevation to a cult figure began. Since then, he's been exhibited by some of the world's top curators, with the smartest auction houses selling his wonky calligraphy, daubed on paper or wooden boards and T-shirts, even on a scooter, which sold for 1.8 million Hong Kong dollars, or 200,000 pounds. He became a fashion icon, inspiring a Hong Kong designer to create a series of collections celebrating his work. And in 2003, the King of Kowloon even became the first Hong Konger to represent the city at the Venice Biennale. To the people of Hong Kong, Zhang has become something of a folk hero. Through his assertions of kingliness, he came to embody a Hong Kong identity distinct from either its British or its Chinese rulers. While his relentless, subversive messaging took politics to the street, providing a blueprint that was emulated decades later by protest movements roiling the city. My obsession with the King of Kowloon started small. My initial intention was simply to write an article about him. Eight years later, I've written a book about him, as well as a PhD and a six-part podcast. At first, I simply wanted to find out whether he had any legitimate claim to the land. He asserted that he'd seen ancestral documents stating his clan's ownership of the peninsula. But my mission was complicated by the fact that Zhang had died in 2007, and his family had always refused to talk to the media. The king was a slippery subject. The more I looked, the less I seemed to find. Everyone knew him, but no one seemed to have any concrete information about him. I began by tracking down people who'd spent time with him. I trekked out to housing estates and sipped tea with gallerists, went to musicians' studios in obscure industrial buildings and artists' workshops in Victorian abattoirs. When I asked about his mental state, some told me that the king, for those I spoke to always called him by his self-appointed title, was delusional. He had schizophrenia. He had multiple personality disorder. Others said he was perfectly sane and played mahjong regularly with his neighbours. He remained bafflingly unknowable. 
The day I saw the characters on the wall in 2015 unlocked emotions that I had not known were there. Nostalgia and an almost physical sense of loss. The words were so familiar. They'd become an integral part of our cityscape. And it was only when I saw them in the wild that I realised just how much I missed them. Every so often, in the years that followed, I'd read about another piece of calligraphy appearing. In 2019, around the time when two million people took to the streets in the biggest demonstrations ever seen in Hong Kong, Zhang's off-balance calligraphy appeared on a flyover pillar near the central peak tram terminus, where paint strips had peeled away, revealing the characters underneath. Then, in mid-2022, a large patch of writing materialised under a railway bridge in Kowloon. This time, the appearance of the calligraphy was clearly deliberate and had nothing to do with the weather. The topmost layer of grey paint had been chipped away to reveal the hidden characters underneath. It was vintage, unmistakable King of Kowloon calligraphy. Only he wrote in that hand, and he always wrote the same things, screeds of names invoking his family genealogy and the places they had lost. Hong Kongers flocked to snap photographs of the miraculous calligraphy. It invoked that same nostalgic longing in them as it had in me. The mystery was why and how the words had reappeared so suddenly, so many years after their author's death. The King of Kowloon's transformation from local crank to icon began in the fervid months leading up to Hong Kong's return to Chinese sovereignty. The atmosphere was a mix of nostalgia and nervous hope as Hong Kongers began to explore their unique identity. Against that backdrop, the King of Kowloon, a subversive, individualistic, rebellious character, began to be seen as a personification of Hong Kong's particular traits. During this period, he was often accompanied by a well-known art curator, Lao Kinwai, a bon vivant with a taste for showmanship. He brought Zhang Choi brushes and ink and went out on his calligraphy expeditions with him to photograph his work. Lao, a celebrated figure in the art world, delivered lunchboxes to Zhang's fetid flat and even went so far as to strap his sandals onto his unwashed feet. In April 1997, Lao organised a solo exhibition of work by the King of Kowloon. Since it was impossible to move Zhang's normal canvas, the city itself, into a gallery, Lao gave Zhang smaller, more saleable objects to paint, such as paper lanterns, glass bottles, and, prophetically, an umbrella. Zhang, delighted with the attention his work was getting, covered these pieces in his distinctive poor man's characters. At the opening, the king clearly enjoyed the limelight, beaming as he was surrounded by reporters. As journalists called out questions about his art and whether he expected to regain his family holdings, he shouted, fuck off, and proclaimed himself owner of everything with an eye shot. The exhibition catalogue aimed to place the king's work within the canon of classical calligraphy, but the establishment did not agree. He's psychotic, one professor of fine arts fumed to the Washington Post as the exhibition opened. 
I don't see any artistic value. The show was a sensation, a circus, the most scandalous exhibition in living memory. Not a single piece of art sold, but Lau did not care. Decades later, he remembered the show as a triumph. The exhibition was controversial, he told me, smiling. That was something I like to do. I like controversy. Zhang's newfound fame did not change the way he lived, and he continued leaving his apartment every morning at 7am to paint on the streets. Although he had a wife and children, they did not live with him. He lived in an apartment in a public housing estate, and those who visited him found the experience traumatically memorable. Every inch of wall space was filled with calligraphy, there was almost no furniture, and the floor was covered with balled-up paper and running with cockroaches. The king lived off disability benefits, awarded after his legs had been crushed in an accident at work. There was a steady stream of collectors and fans at his doorstep, and they often paid for his work in lunchboxes of roast pork with bean curd and cans of ice-cold coke. The king, who never saw himself as an artist, seemed content with these arrangements. I don't care about money and fame, he told one interviewer. They should just give me back my throne. The reputation of the King of Kowloon gathered momentum through the handover year, as Britain prepared to divest itself of its last remaining colony. For 1997 Fashion Week, the last under the British administration, designer William Tang Tachi made his whole show a homage to the King of Kowloon. The collection was cool and quirky, with each piece covered with the king's characteristic calligraphy. The pièce de résistance was a concrete-coloured, graffiti-covered, asymmetric one-shouldered gown with a 20-metre train. Tang said he'd found the fabric so beautiful that he couldn't bring himself to cut it. At this historic moment, the show made a bold statement about Hong Kong's distinct identity. Tang's hasty, crowded calligraphy echoed the energy and density of Hong Kong's streets, and the face of the model striding down the runway was steely with determination. It was a defining moment, the launch of a Hong Kong aesthetic that conveyed the island's sense of itself, modern, hybrid, streetwise, confident. When I met Tang in 2019, he was dressed in black, tall and astonishingly boyish for 60. When I asked him to sum up the impact of the collection, he smiled. It was, he asserted, the most, really the only memorable collection in Hong Kong's fashion history. For Hong Kongers, the show had deep historical resonances. William Tang Tachi is a descendant of the powerful Tang clan, which settled in Hong Kong in 973 AD. They were the original landowners who'd been dispossessed and who had, in 1899, led the Six-Day War opposing the British takeover of the new territories. My family, the Tangs, have been here for a thousand years, Tang told me. We should be the kings of Kowloon. When I asked Tang to explain the significance of the collection, he struggled to put it into words. People were laughing about it, he told me, shaking his head. They said, Is the idea that you are using the King of Kowloon to talk about your family? 
I said, don't make it that complicated. I'm not that kind of person. For the king himself, the crooked characters may have simply expressed a narrow personal quest. But Hong Kongers found the constancy of his message reassuring at a time of intense change, as well as representing a treasured collective memory. For those in the know, his characters invoke themes that had traditionally remained unspoken. A history of mass dispossession. The stinging humiliation of a once powerful clan. And a message that none of this had been forgotten. His loss of land may have been imagined, but to a people handed from one sovereign power to another, its metaphorical power still resonated. After the handover, the King's star continued to rise. He starred in a humorous TV ad for a cleaning fluid, which rebranded him as a cuddly mascot. He made cameo appearances in films shot in Hong Kong. His work was included in a touring exhibition called Cities on the Move, curated by art world superstars Hans Ulrich Obrist and Ho Han Ru. And in 1999, his work travelled to Taiwan and the US, alongside that of Mao Zedong, in a show organised by one of Hong Kong's most famous curators, Johnson Chang Tong Zong. In 2003, he became the first Hong Konger to show at the prestigious Venice Biennale. In 2004, a wooden board painted by the king sold for 55,000 Hong Kong dollars. A lifestyle brand covered its products with his writing, marketing King of Kowloon underwear, bedding and slippers. But the king's life did not change. Even though he'd become a celebrity and something of a commodity, he continued to paint on the streets. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. The story continues right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. From 2004, Deng's work began to disappear from the streets. He was still living in his stinking 18th floor apartment in a Kuntong public housing estate, surrounded by empty ink bottles and dried brushes. But in 2004, at the age of 83, he accidentally set the apartment on fire. His family took the opportunity to move him into a nursing home. At first, he was distraught, since the home banned him from painting, owing to the mess and smell of the sticky black traditional calligraphy ink. Unable to paint, the king could not sleep at night. But soon a solution was found by a young advertising executive called Joel Chung-Ying Tai, who had taken over some of the work formerly done by Lao. Chung brought the king markers and paper to write on, but the king's ideograms were becoming misshapen and confused, the lines looping unpredictably around each other. Sometimes he forgot how to write the familiar characters and had to ask Chung for help. In 2007, he was hospitalised three times for complaints including pulmonary edema. Chung visited him in hospital, bringing some yellow canvases and a lemon-yellow model of a terracotta warrior for the king to sign for a charity auction. The king seemed cheerful, but his characters were meandering and misaligned. As he painted, he commented, Hey, I'm not the king anymore. I'm not doing it. I'm not. Chung was confused. He asked, You're not the king? The answer was good-natured but firm. I'm not doing it. I'm not the king. Let someone else do it. Afterwards, Chung realised that Zhang had signed the back of the terracotta warrior, not with his usual King of Kowloon, but with a scrawl Zhang Tso Choi. On the 15th of July 2007, Zhang died of a heart attack. It took more than 10 days for the news to emerge. Chung was busy working on a book about the king and not visiting every day. And Zhang's family were embarrassed about the attention he attracted. But when it did, the king's death was reported in newspapers across the political spectrum. Even the communists sympathising Wen Wei Po. He was compared to Van Gogh and Picasso celebrated for the simplicity of his lifestyle and his work ethic. Apple Daily, a pro-democracy newspaper that was shut down in 2021, printed a full-colour commemorative edition, with a wraparound front page announcing, The King is dead! 
The choice of language was deliberate, using a form of Chinese characters, ga beng or jia bang, reserved for the death of a monarch. This lamentation echoed across the front pages. The king is dead and everyone is missing him. The king is dead and his people are crying and wailing. The king is dead, his ink treasures were poetic masterpieces. The king is dead, who will succeed him? Zhang's legacy at the time of his death was perhaps best summed up by his friend, the rap star MC Yen. Zhang used to claim that the rapper, who wore his hair in a pigtail, was a time traveller from ancient China. MC Yen told a reporter, no matter if he's a true or fake king, he was very sure of his own identity, unlike Hong Kong people, who don't know if they're from the East or the West. The king had only ever had one message, a consistent statement of his ancestry and sovereignty. It could be read as an assertion of identity and as a repudiation of colonisation. For his admirers, this stood in contrast to the mealy-mouthed pronouncements of successive, unpopular, China-appointed chief executives, who by their very job description had been unable to speak either for themselves or for the people of Hong Kong. His supporters saw the King of Kowloon as the last free Hong Konger, with the autonomy to speak his mind. Throughout his life, Zhang had never seen himself as an artist, but after his death, his work gained in value. Retrospectives were put on in Hong Kong, and a thick monograph about him was printed, in which Hans Ulrich Obrist called him a poet whose page was public space. But his importance was not so much as an artist as a pioneer of political graffiti. His messages of protest entered the city's bloodstream. In 2014, when protesters filled the territory's streets during the Umbrella Movement, they adopted the King's methods. That year, an estimated 1.2 million Hong Kongers occupied three major thoroughfares for 79 days to demand more say in the choice of chief executive. Near the government headquarters in Admiralty, they feathered one wall with declarations scrawled on sorbet-coloured post-it notes. Fighting for democracy. We love Hong Kong. The king was an inspiration for the new generation of dissenters. He had taken politics to the street well before the Occupy movement appeared all over the world. He was the original occupier, one young designer told me. In 2019, China proposed an extradition law that would give Beijing the power to send suspected criminals to the mainland to be tried under the Chinese justice system. Hong Kong residents feared the proposed law would undermine the territory's independent judicial system, and they took to the streets in their hundreds of thousands. This time, the post-it notes spread across overhead walkways and through underground tunnels, on shop windows and street signs, like a swarm released into the city. Hong Kong is not China. We are Hong Kong. Home Kong. These were not only walls of discontent, but also walls of community, walls of solidarity. Over and over, the messages asserted a Hong Kong identity separate from China. One Hong Kong! 
As the protests continued, the police responded with tear gas and violence, arresting youngsters simply for wearing black, the colour of the movement. The protesters also stepped up their tactics, throwing stones and Molotov cocktails at police. The protesters graduated from post-it notes to graffiti, sprayed directly onto roads, walls and tram shelters. Fuck the police. Chinazi. If we burn, you burn with us. These slogans, like the king's endless screeds, entered the same cycle of destruction and reclamation. Though now, instead of one man and his paintbrush, it was happening at speed and all across the territory at the same time. Hong Kong's walls and pillars were now covered with newly painted grey squares hastily slapped over the protest slogans. As new graffiti kept appearing, these too were covered with a patchwork of white, black and dark grey rectangles. Sometimes government contractors painted over the characters so carefully that they ended up emphasising every word. I saw the words Hong Kong people looming from a tram stop so clearly it seemed like the cleaners were joining the protest. It reminded me of the words of artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. I cross out words so you will see them more. It was a lesson Hong Kong's authorities had failed to learn from the king. In mid-2019, as I was covering the protest movement, I received a message from the king's last helper, Joel Chung, inviting me to meet. I had wanted to see him after hearing peculiar accusations against him by Lau, the king's first curator. The two men had a famously testy relationship. Lau had accused Chung of deliberately destroying pieces by the king. He also said Chung had spray-painted over a large piece of the king's calligraphy with an image of skyscrapers and the words, art is not everything, but we need it. Lau had been so disgusted that he'd lodged a police complaint. Chung's office was like a magical museum of childhood. Dangling from the ceiling were string bags full of red and white plastic balls, skipping ropes and old-fashioned wooden kite spools. Chung had established a museum of stationery, filled with cupboards of vintage fountain pens, novelty erasers and wooden rulers inked with the names of generations of schoolchildren past. Chung was an eccentric figure with trademark thick black round spectacles. I carefully broached Lau's accusations, asking if it was true that he'd destroyed some of the king's calligraphy. In response, he cheerfully pulled up a video. The words, seen, disappeared, appeared on the screen, against a wall covered in the king's faded calligraphy. As tense, haunting music played, tendrils of flame licked at a piece of paper covered with the king's black characters. Feathery puffs of ash spiralled into the air as a second piece of calligraphy went up in flames. As I watched the video, my hands flew up to my head in horror. Chung seemed delighted by my reaction. He explained that he owned more than 500 pieces of the king's work and he'd decided he could sacrifice a couple of them to revive awareness of his legacy. When I asked him if he'd destroyed the mule, 
Chung gleefully owned up to the crime. But that was only half the story, he told me. In fact, he'd taken measures to protect the king's calligraphy by covering it with a layer of plastic wrap and then painting on top of that. The destruction was a trompe l'oeil, he said, with satisfaction. Lao was upset, he giggled, because he hadn't realised that the destruction was fake. When I asked him about the magical appearance of the characters I'd seen on the wet wall in Central, he let me into a secret. He had mixed special inks for the king, which were unusually sticky, sometimes using a mixture of ink acrylic and water, and sometimes turpentine and enamel paint. In Central, the king's ink had been so sticky that the grey paint used by the authorities to cover it had stuck to the ink. And then, somehow, both layers had flaked off, leaving the outline of the characters underneath clearly visible. As I took my leave, Chung walked me to the lift. It was an ancient, cage-type elevator with horizontal double doors that joined in the middle, requiring someone to simultaneously pull them up and down to meet in the middle. Are you in a hurry? Chung asked casually. Have you got five minutes? He jumped into the lift with me, and we descended. When we reached ground level, he picked up his pace. I was struggling to keep up as he cantered across the highway, dodging cars. When we reached the median strip, he clambered up a bank. In front of us, through some scrubby bushes, was the rounded pillar of a flyover. I could hardly believe my eyes. The column was covered with the king's words. Not the ghost words or the sun-damaged patches of writing I'd found in my searches, but thick black characters in excellent condition. The patch of writing was about one square metre, much larger than any other example of the king's work in the wild. How on earth had it survived unnoticed? This, it turned out, was part of Joel Chung's secret mission. He explained that he'd accompanied the king when he was working. When the king first painted the pillar, Chung had noted its location on a spreadsheet. When the original work was covered up by a government contractor, he'd marked that down too. Now he was methodically chipping away at the grey paint to expose the calligraphy underneath. It was slow and tedious work, and he'd already spent more than a week on this pillar. Once the whole work was visible, he'd cover it in a transparent oil to preserve it. Then he'd paint over it with a fresh coat of grey paint, leaving no one any the wiser. For a decade, working from his spreadsheet, Chung had been methodically uncovering the king's hidden works, one by one, restoring them, then painting over them again. He was creating a clandestine museum of the king's work, known only to himself. Three years later, some of these pieces are coming to light, as the uppermost layers flake off or are removed. At the same time, the King of Kowloon is having a revival. He was front and centre at the first exhibition held in Hong Kong's new £620 million M-plus Visual Arts Museum, which finally opened its doors in November 2021, four years behind schedule. He was also fated at the prestigious Art Basel in Hong Kong in May, 
where relics of the king, such as his television and his kettle, were exhibited alongside his artworks. But the king's work was not intended for rarefied art galleries. It was supposed to be out on the streets, where it could be seen by his people. Chung's painstaking work is ensuring that this may still be possible for some time to come. When I was young, people saw the King of Kowloon as a madman. But nowadays, people whisper that maybe he was a shaman or a prophet whose words predicted a future of subjugation and loss. In 2020, after draconian national security legislation was imposed on Hong Kong, the very act of claiming the land or declaring sovereignty could be seen as an act of secession. Since that legislation... The Hong Kong of old has been remade. Its legislature has been reshaped into a patriots-only body, with election candidates requiring police vetting for patriotism, while dozens of democratic politicians are in jail on subversion charges. Its civil servants are forced to make oaths of allegiance. School curricula are being rewritten to emphasise national security rather than critical thinking. Civil society organisations have been disbanded and marches outlawed, allegedly on COVID safety grounds. The King of Kowloon's preoccupations, sovereignty, territory, dispossession and loss, were prophetic. He was exploring these ideas at the same time as academics, philosophers, artists and musicians. After the national security legislation changed Hong Kong forever, some of these artists and thinkers were imprisoned, some went into exile, and some simply stopped talking. My pursuit of the king had led me to his courtiers, who turned out to be some of Hong Kong's most influential minds. And so I became an archivist of disappearance. One day, years before the protests, I visited a well-known Hong Kong artist who told me he considered Zhang his hero. I asked him what he'd learnt from him. Determination, he replied, as a person, not as an artist. Someone taking action for what he believes in, for years and years. I don't see anyone that can compare with him. Another of the king's followers told me what the king had taught him, to be a Hong Kong person and to tell the Hong Kong story to others. The questions that had been so central to me when I set out were no longer important. I still didn't know if the king was mentally competent or not. I'd failed to confirm or deny the truth of his territorial claim. What mattered was not the substance of his claim, but how it gave a voice to sentiments we didn't know until he voiced them for us. Under the spell of his imagined sovereignty, he had forced us to reckon with our own conflicted identity and measure ourselves against the self-governing entity that he presented. Today, our dreams have been outlawed, our anthems and slogans banned, our very thoughts choked off before they could form. Now, we all are kings of Kowloon. Dispossessed of our ancestral lands, 
shorn of the very idea of ourselves, left with nothing but our loss. was The King of Kowloon, My Search for the Cult Graffiti Prophet of Hong Kong, written and read by Louisa Lim, produced by Jessica Beck, recorded by Gavin Neighbour in the Hallwood studio at the University of Melbourne. The executive producer was Max Sanderson. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Or find us on SoundCloud at SoundCloud forward slash The Guardian Long Read. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.